Good to see everyone this morning, and what a delightful opportunity to be back together today. This past week, we enjoyed a gospel meeting with Steve Higginbotham sharing some tremendous and powerfully profound lessons with us. We we're not only thankful for that, but all the encouragement and the edification that it brought us. But today, it's good to be back together as the Pippin Church family. As you probably have already noticed on the, the wall behind me, we're going to talk about making a human arrow this morning making human arrows. You probably have already noticed from the lesson text where I'm going to take you. If you'd like to, please be revisiting the 127th Psalm for the next few moments with me this morning. Psalm 127. I know it's been mentioned a couple of times today, but so deserving to be mentioned again. Mother's Day. Now, our federal government set aside this particular day, the second Sunday in the month of May every year, as a day to honor mothers. And today we're delighted to do that, and that'll be the subject in many ways of this lesson that you and I are going to study for the next few moments. Let me perhaps begin that, though, in the following way. You'll notice on this introductory, this opening slide, isn't it so that a child may refer to his or her mother by several words? Sometimes it's mom, and sometimes it's mama, and sometimes it's, I guess, the more proper mother. But however the description occurs, there's something very special about the role of a mother. And that, of course, is echoed in the Word of God. It's true a woman may occupy any number of roles at some point in life. And I've listed a whole host of them. But there's something very unique and very profound and very influential about her activities as a mother. And yet today, as we discuss that, I hope we'll each be reminded of how special it is for a woman who is a mother. And we're going to look at Psalm 127 as the basis for a lesson. So would you be, please be turning back to that, and let's use the first part of this lesson as a bit of a foundation, a springboard, if you please. I'll begin reading in verse number 3. I know Joe read this just a moment ago, but just to cement it in our thinking, here's the way it reads. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. You may notice that there's, among other things, a rather remarkable perspective with regard to a child. Now, I think as I speak before an audience like this one, most of these ideas that we're about to share are not revolutionary, and they're not certainly that thing that's beyond our appreciation. But we live in a culture that just doesn't think this way. Begin with me like this. What does it mean when the inspired writer said, rather bluntly, that children are in heritage of the Lord? You may immediately cast a spotlight on the word heritage. Did you notice here that it is said before all of us that children are linked to the notion of the word heritage? That word occurs 224 times in the Bible. In fact, you may appreciate that of those occurrences in the Old Testament, the meaning is easy. The meaning is inheritance. There are many occurrences of that word in which it refers to land, such as the children of Israel receive the heritage of God concerning that land of Canaan, the promised land to which they journeyed. 
Joshua 11, verse number 23 describes it that way. Same Hebrew word. Later on, Lamentations 5, verse 2, same word there connected to the land as Israel had inherited it from God. But may I suggest that we aren't talking about land in Psalm 127. It says children are inherited of the Lord. It would seem then that the idea that is put before all of us is this. Children are prized and precious and special entities, beings, such that God has made them available to us, and oh, how special they are. Children are truly remarkable. You may notice about the middle of that slide, what is more innocent than a child? Here is this child, and again, it has not in any way, either boy or girl, learned about the tainted character of sin. They don't know anything about that. Their spirit is absolutely spotless. They're made that way. Now, I know there are some in our religious world who think that they're born in sin, but that's not so. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. In fact, couldn't we say this? God makes them in His image. Now, does God create an evil spirit? Well, we know He doesn't. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variable and is neither shadow of turning, to borrow the wording of James 1.17. And so, as this innocent child enters the world, doesn't have any sin to stain it whatsoever, this boy, this girl, in that innocence in which they've been given, they, however, have been given an immortal spirit. They'll never die. They'll live for a while on earth, but then they'll live for all the remainder of eternity elsewhere. Not only that, consider this. That baby, boy or girl, was made in the image of God. That alone speaks volumes, doesn't it? Now, we know they don't physically look like God. None of us do. Can't we appreciate this? In Luke 24, 39, we're told that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. So that little baby boy or girl, we know physically he or she does not look like God, but yet they're made in His image. They bear the elemental character of what eternity is all about. Sinless and pure. When you and I look into the eyes of a child, may we be thankful that they are in heritage of the Lord. But that isn't all it says. Look at what comes next. I would ask you to appreciate, and I ask you to note with me, that text in Ezekiel chapter 28. I mentioned a moment ago that again, they aren't born in sin. And maybe that verse among all those in the Bible helps us understand the greatness of just how wrong the idea is that they might be born in sin. Here is what the God of heaven through his prophet Ezekiel said. Speaking of the king of Tyre, he said, Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day thou wast created until iniquity was found in thee. Notice, perfect, sinless, from the day you were created until you chose to sin. Babies are not born in sin. Look at the next statement made in the chapter, please, with me. It goes on to say, The fruit of the womb is His reward. Now this is an explanation of and a somewhat of an expansion of the earlier statement in the verse. The fruit of the womb. Now we know a woman is the unique member of the human family able to give birth this way. And you'll notice the fruit of the womb 
is here expressly said to be the reward available from God. Children are called a reward. Earlier they were called a heritage, now they're called a reward. The development at the bottom, you'll notice, is this. Children are such that they are a reward to us as the human family. Isn't it so often true they turn our eyes from the mundane character of what is so wrong about the social nature of this world because they lead us to see it through their eyes. The innocence of a child is remarkable. Sweet, precious, so easy to love. I'm reminded, aren't you, that in Matthew 19, Jesus called the little children to Him. And in the very presence of them, as He taught those that were around Him, He said, unless you become like them, you'll never go to heaven. You've got to be humble like they are. May I suggest, doesn't that impress upon us as we grow older? We can lose that so easily. We can so much begin to dwell selfishly. But here, notice reward is the word that's used. And may I close that slide this way. What an honor they can often be because notice again, a child depends on us as adults. That baby can't feed itself. It can't earn a living and provide for itself. It requires another to, to assist and to help. May you and I never forget we need God that way. We require His guidance, His sustenance, His provision, and without it, we'll never be able to live where He is. That isn't all this verse says, because the title of the lesson is drawn from the next description. It may be this one is the most unusual one, but may I say in many ways, it's the one that will be the basis for the rest of the lesson. Would you notice again verse 4 with me? As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Every one of us knows about an arrow and how it works. We can easily imagine this capable individual is able to take an arrow and put it into a bow mechanism and draw the bow back and release that mechanism in such a way to direct that arrow where he wants it to go. In other words, the arrow doesn't travel randomly. It travels to its target, to its destination, and it does so as a result of the skilled aim and the skilled capability of the marksman. Look back to verse 4. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, this isn't a lecture on archery. The word as indicates this again is a simile. That's the biblical clue for something that you and I know well is being used to teach us about some spiritual truth. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Have you ever thought of a child as an arrow? Maybe not, but that's what this verse teaches. Let's develop it then like this. Isn't it so that a marksman, an archer if you please, is able to take an arrow and again by virtue of his or her skill to direct that arrow in the direction that he or she wants it to go. And that's the same description that's here given with respect to children. There is no one that stands above a mother in the capability and the blessing of serving as the marksman to direct the life of a child. Let's think about some ways in which a mother does that. 
and some ways in which we can each be encouraged by the activities of a mother in that way. And so let's close that slide this way. We thus are going to discuss making human arrows. To all young mothers, what might be some practical things you can do to help make your little boy or girl as an arrow in the way that would satisfy and please the God of heaven? If you are an older mother, what things can you still do that might assist and help in serving to nonetheless direct as a proper arrow that child of yours, although that child may be older? May I suggest just a few of them? Perhaps you could add some more. But let me begin by asking you to think about one other attribute of an arrow. You know, isn't it so that an arrow doesn't make itself? You can't go out into the yard and pick up a stick and use that as an arrow. It is not going to work very well. Rather, you take some piece of metal or perhaps wood and you shape it, you cut it, you polish it, you do those things necessary to make of it an aerodynamically shaped arrow that will have the capabilities you want. This text says children don't make themselves. I know that often those in the political arena would have us believe that a child knows what's best for itself. It doesn't. It should cause every one of us to cringe when we hear some adults say, I'm going to allow my children, my young children, to make their own decisions. Arrows don't make themselves. They need the wisdom, the guidance, the insight of a parent, a mother, a father. But with that in mind, just a few ideas perhaps that could be helpful to all of us. How do you make an arrow? How do you make a human arrow? Lesson number one, begin early in life. May I say that again? Begin early in life. Isn't it true the Word of God helps us see the vitality and the needfulness of beginning early? I know my family have been rather continually impressed with Hallie, our granddaughter, though she's just a bit over a year, how quickly she can learn things, pick up things, appreciate things. Well, of course, all children have the remarkable attribute of being able to learn things from an early age. Mothers, fathers alike for that matter. Make sure you begin to make that human arrow early in life. I've asked you to consider verses such as this one, 2 Timothy 3.15. Here, as Paul wrote to, to his son in the faith, Timothy, he made this interesting remark. He said, Timothy, from a babe thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Question, while Timothy was a baby, was he able to read the Scriptures? We all know the answer to that. What Paul was referring to in that occasion was Timothy was influenced by and he had the guiding pressures of a mother who we learn otherwise from that same book was named Eunice and his grandmother was named Lois. And they had imprinted upon Timothy from an early age, from a babe, the nature, the integrity of the Word of God. Mothers, you've got to begin early. Shaping that human arrow directing it in the way that it ought to go. But not only that text in 2 Timothy, I've added the Old Testament. What about Solomon? As he drew near the close of the book of Ecclesiastes, these unforgettable words, 
Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Well, the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. As a child grows, that boy or girl, they need to be directed in such a way they appreciate that. To remember God from early, early age. Surely, many times as you and I think about that, I've asked you to appreciate that there are some poems that many have composed over the years that highlight this necessity, this importance of beginning early in life. Our idea again is this, if you're going to make an arrow, this human arrow, you've got to begin early. The first poem is entitled, The Sculptor. I don't know the name of the author, but the poem itself speaks very vividly to what we're discussing today. It goes like this. I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it steel, it moved and yielded to my will. I came again when days were past. That piece of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it, it still bore, and I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and formed it gently day by day and fashioned it with power and art, a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when years were gone. It was a man I looked upon. He still that early impress bore, and I could change him nevermore. You know, the first part of that little poem described what a potter does to a piece of clay. You shape it and mold it, and then once it's dried, that vessel is complete and you cannot alter it. In the same way, the second stanza pointed out the heart of a child, how that you start to mold it from an early age and impress upon it the nature of this arrow. And at that point, it's fixed and unchangeable. Now, you and I in wisdom think about beginning early in life. But you know, there's another poem, somewhat shorter than that one. It's simply entitled, Before He's Won. That little poem simply goes somewhat like this. Before your child comes to seven, teach him well the way to heaven. Better still, the truth will thrive if he knows it when he's five. Better yet, if at your knee... He learns it when he's only three. Best of all, when you've begun to teach of Jesus before he's one. Doesn't that say it well? And so to mothers and to fathers alike, may we keenly appreciate you begin to shape this human arrow from an early, early age. What about a second lesson? Consistency. Mothers, fathers alike, how vital it is that you exemplify consistency. There is one thing, of course, that will leap to the consideration of any child as they grow older and mature. They will spot inconsistency instantly. They'll know whether you are what you claim to be. They'll know if your basic nature and character is what you portray. They see you at the house. They see you when you're not around other people. They see you when you're not at the church building. They see you when you're not at Bible study. They know what you really are like. That's the reason I've entitled it, Be Consistent. Let's start in Proverbs 22, 6. There the ancient writer pointed out, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. That verb that's used to begin the verse, train, it carries more than just the idea of verbal instruction. 
you and I know that when you train someone to do something, you assist them to learn that skill. Maybe you show them a time or two, and then you invite them to duplicate your example. As parents, are we doing that? We talk the way we want them to talk. We think about the things we want them to think about. We, in fact, proceed to go the places we ultimately would one day want them to go. We train them. Doesn't that imply that to all of us, mothers and fathers alike, is my life a life of consistency? That that child sees in me someone who borrows the power of Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. May I again say, a child knows well if you and I are what we claim to be. And so in consistency, I've asked you to consider this verse. In James 1 verse 8, all I need to do is begin it, and you, you know it well, but a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Children want strength and stability. Oh, they not, may not be happy with the nature of restraint or the nature of, let's say, direct affirmations of things, but they'll come to appreciate it. Consistency. Can't you and I be thankful for a mother that's consistent? Maybe you remember times when Mama said no, and that's all that had to be said. Whatever it was, it was under discussion. There was no more pursuit of it. Mama had said no. Perhaps at the time, we didn't appreciate that answer much. But perhaps over time, we've come to realize the wisdom in her answer and the insight she knew how that might turn out and likely would have. In addition to consistency, the next verse... Romans 2 verse 1, although the context highlights the Jewish response, isn't the lesson still easy to see? Paul writing to the church in Rome, especially the Jewish constituency of it, said, Thou art inexcusable, old man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou doest the same thing. They were hypocrites. They were inconsistent. And Paul wrote to the church and said, you're never going to win others to Christ that way. Well, so too, you and I appreciate a mother who's consistent, dedicated to the things of well-being and love and the truth of God. Let's close that slide by referring to Timothy one more time. I'm sure you're perhaps well aware of it, and many a lesson has reminded us about 2 Timothy 1 verse 5. But Paul there makes an interesting observation. As he referred to Timothy, he paid attention to Timothy's unfeigned faith. But he says, It first dwelt in your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois. Our interest for the moment, what's the word unfeigned mean? What is a faith that's unfeigned? If you're reading in a different translation, it might use the word genuine or real or unhypocritical. The idea is, you and I are encouraged to appreciate the sincerity and the honesty that goes with a kind of mother that would be godly. Not only consistent, and not only, as we've already learned earlier, who's begun at an early age, but who is ready for lesson three. For what else might be said? Mothers, be expectant in regard to your children. By that I mean this. Expect things of them and let them know what you expect. 
let them appreciate that you anticipate and you, you expect their behavior to be in such and such a way. And encourage them to live up to it. And if they don't, we'll learn about the consequences in a minute. But in other words, don't allow those expectations to go unappreciated. In other words, help them be responsible. I say that because we currently live in a world where by and large responsibility is becoming a thing of the past. Cast the blame on somebody else. It isn't my fault. He made me do it. My parents made me do it. That's not good. A child needs to learn, he or she, they're going to be responsible for themselves. And that too begins early. Look at some of these verses. In 1 Timothy 6, verse number 20, as well as Proverbs 6, verse number 20, we are told this, Children, obey the law of your mother. Now that word law is an interesting word in a context like that one. In other words, mama's got some laws. We all know in the house her laws need to be obeyed and often rather, shall we say, painful consequences exist if they aren't. Isn't it fair to say then, mothers, let your law be presented. Now, this should be fair, obviously, and equitable, but the law of your mother. Ladies, as you start early, again, directing that arrow, if that child, again, let the him or her realize those expectations, and the next verse is going to be this one, this will begin to instill in that youngster the nature of what God will anticipate of them. I'm reminded, aren't you, about a man who had received five talents and one had received two and one had received one. And the five and the two, in fact, put into action those talents they'd received. The one talent man didn't. May I ask, was he responsible? Did he have to answer for his failure to put into practice that one talent he'd received? And oh, yes, he was. For in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, we find he was severely judged. Cast the wicked servant, the, the slothful servant, into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, to borrow the wording of Matthew 25, 30. And so as children grow, make sure they're responsible. Hold them to that. And the last thing will be this. That means you'll need to restrain them. There will be occasions when they will make wrong decisions. They will have wrong ideas. They will see things in a way that's not healthy and good for them for all eternity. Mothers, fathers, you've got to step in. You can't let them proceed down that walkway that leads to nowhere good. After all, wasn't it said in 1 Samuel 3, Samuel did not restrain his boys. He didn't. And God judged him severely because of it. For the second example, in 1 Kings chapter 1, David didn't restrain his son Adonijah either. One more time, that's sad. That's tragic. Perhaps in light of all of that, may I say that there's one final lesson. Having looked so far at this one, what about joyfulness? Mothers, be joyful. Children, in fact, are those that move toward and they gravitate toward happiness. Quite often that innocence presents itself that way. I've invited you to think with me about several verses. Can't we be thankful for a joyful mother, a godly mother? 
who loves the law of God and who wishes to see to it her children are directed in that same way. Human arrows. Those children are not going to end up where we want them to go if we don't direct them. Can you imagine the disaster that an arrow has if it is shot haphazardly? If it is shot randomly, you can do a great deal of harm and damage. But yet, children are called this arrow. May you and I strive then as joyfulness to direct that arrow in the way it ought to go. Jesus said, My peace I leave with you. John 16, We're told in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. We have reason to be happy when we're children of God. And our children will see that in us. And they will want that kind of happiness because I assure you the world won't give it. The world presents despair. The world presents, shall we say, hopelessness. But that Christian mother who has begun from an early age with expectancy, with responsibility, with joy, and with a desire to fulfill this teaching of Psalm 127, what a blessing she'll be. And how blessed those children are to have her as the mother. Today, as we honor mothers, I hope these little helpful ideas have directed us to one final conclusion. In many ways, it's the key thought of the book of Second John. In 2 John and 3 John alike, this little statement is found. I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. Ladies, mothers, I hope that you feel that way because I assure you, you have an impression that shall last through all eternity. How special it is to be a godly mother, to want your children to go to heaven and to live before them in the way that you encourage that hopefulness. Please live that way in faith, in verity, committed to the things of God. And fathers, may we help them live that way, and may we also be that example to our children we ought to be. These concluding thoughts on the slide are simply these. We've learned today about valuing children the way the Bible sets them out. The heritage of the Lord, the reward from God, and the arrows in the hand of a mighty man. I hope each of us as adults will strive to direct that arrow, that human arrow, as it ought to go. Today, as you analyze and examine your life, is all well with your soul? Are your children seeing in you what they ought to be seeing? If they are, please continue that walk in faithfulness and always set before them, whether they're young or old, what you ought to be because they're looking to you and you are a great influence upon them. But may I say, if your life isn't as it ought to be, you can change. And may I say, your children won't look upon you negatively. They will admire you for having the courage to recognize the need to change and then doing something about it. If we can help you today... Perhaps as a person who once was a faithful Christian but isn't today, why not come back to God? It is He that's inviting you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who perhaps from the very cross is beckoning you to come back to His side. He wants you to be faithful and to be the kind of parent and mother that you would like to be. You need to repent of sins if that's the need in your life. Confess them, make acknowledgement of them, and we'd be honored to pray to God for you.
If you've never become a Christian, though, what better day would there be than the 12th day of May, 2019? Your spiritual birthday. The day you put on Christ in baptism, you need to believe with all of your heart, Jesus, to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and then be baptized. If we could help you in doing that today, it'd be our joy. But we would invite you to come and do it now while together we stand and while we sing.